Blaze Radio Network. And now, Reform This with Dr. Sudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. And it is great to have all of you back. And hopefully if you're looking for a little discussion on the topics that either the media is too afraid to touch or just won't touch or don't see as priorities, you've come to the right place. And also from the perspective of this humble American Muslim correspondent. And first, I want to wish my fellow brothers and sisters a uh, blessed Ramadan. And hopefully they had a wonderful fast and a happy Eid al-Futr, the holiday of the feast, that is the first day of the 10th month that begins the month at the end and after Ramadan is done, after a long, sometimes grueling, sometimes easy fast day to day. May your prayers, may your supplications be answered and uh, may now you get back to the full gear throttle for the rest of the 11 months of the year of what you and your family pray and and wish for day to day. So a blessed holiday to all of the uh, Muslims out there. And I hope my Christian friends had a blessed Easter and the Jewish community had also all their prayers heard in their days of Passover. So this week, I, I want to touch on, there's just an amazing study that came out about American values. And I think it really hits to the core of what this program is all about, which is why Americanism, why the values of being an American are run to the core of how we defeat ideologies that will um, attempt to take us out from within and also threaten us from abroad, whether it's the violent militant aspects of terrorism or the internal subversion of ideologies that tear us apart. And there's a study that shows that while we haven't talked as much about terrorism and other militant and engagements of our military against uh, violent threats, it seems that we're weaker than we've ever been. And why do I say that? What am I talking about? I'm talking about economy? No. No, I'm talking about the spirit, the, the ideas that bind us. And we'll talk about that in a sec. The Islamists in America have been patting uh, each other on the uh, the back, thanking the the saying that there's been a dip in Islamophobia. What does that mean? And we'll talk where their perspective is and how backwards it is when it comes to the real, I think, the real interests of our various faith communities, if you will. And then uh, a recent study talked about the most powerful Muslim-majority countries and how they measure that and how much that data might be interesting, but also how much it misses in the discussion of power, if you will. So first, let's talk a little bit about what it means when they talk about American values and uh, whether it's patriotism, religious faith, families, family values, having children, other priorities, that, as the Wall Street Journal said, define the national character for generations. They seem to be receding in importance to Americans. Uh, 
as the New Wall Street Journal and NORC poll finds. The survey conducted with NORC at the University of Chicago nonpartisan research organization found that the country sharply divides by political party. Surprise, surprise. But it divides over social trends such as the push for racial diversity in businesses and the use of gender neutral pronouns. Some 38% of respondents said that patriotism was very important to them. And 39% said religion was very important. That was down precipitously from when the journal first asked these questions in 1998, when 70% deemed patriotism to be very important and 62% said so of religion. Now, for context, some people might say, well, we're in a downturn of economy where, you know, this is uh, people are negative. That was in 98 during the Clinton administration when there was an impeachment in progress and there was uh, an unraveling happening in the influence of the White House, if you will. So, yes, the economy was doing much better, if you will, but there were certainly partisan uh, issues plaguing our society as always. And if you look at the graphs, you see each of these issues, patriotism going from 70% down to 38%, importance of religion going from a little over 60% down to 38%, the importance of family diving equally significantly by 70%. Community involvement from 98 going all the way up in 2019 and now all the way back down to 20% down from 50%. And, you know, the share of Americans who say that having children, involvement of the community and hard work are very important values has also fallen. Um, You know, tolerance for others deemed very important by 80% of Americans uh, as recently as 2019 has fallen to 58% since then. Bill McIntyre, a pollster who worked on a previous journal survey, said that the majority of these attitudes, along with NBC News, said that these differences are so dramatic it paints a new and surprising portrait of a changing America. He surmised that Perhaps the toll of our political division, COVID, and the lowest economic confidence in decades is starting, is having a startling effect on our core values. And that's what I want to talk about. If there is anything that threatens who we are, that threatens our security, is the loss of our core values. And that's why good people need to get into politics. That's why people who we want our children to be like need to get into politics and not to have exceptions of character and exceptions and say, well, they're saying the right things, but they don't do the right things. We need role models. But it doesn't mean you have to compromise your your own values to say, well, we just have to settle for what we got. Well, this is the point. We're, we're far before the elections. Let's get good people to run, not only for the highest offices in the land, but for city councils, for school boards, for all of the grassroots retail politics that exists around the country, neighborhood to neighborhood, school district to school district, and start running on platforms of reinvigorating, reestablishing a new day, a new day for our core values. Because we are dying on the vine. If you don't see this, and I'll say this as a physician, if you don't see this as a diagnostic sentinel moment for our country in which we now see polls, 
Remember, polls are always late, right? This poll is finally being done, saying what many of us thought. We, we constantly focus on the, the, the car accidents that are Twitter interactions, the, the short attention span of TikTok and YouTube and others, and then say that, wow, this is, is there a degradation of society? And you watch all of the negativity and, and, and constant demeaning of each other, the, the messaging that somehow we are all bigots, we are all hateful, we are all violent gun addicts, all these kind of things that come out of the mainstream, so-called mainstream media are being marginalized and replaced by other media. And yet, it still seems that there's just a preponderance of negativity and positivity doesn't seem to sell. It's not only positivity, it, what, is, what doesn't seem to sell is an endorsement of our values, an endorsement of the core values in which America was founded on. How many of the teens and millennials and Z, Generation Z have read the Tocqueville? An understanding of what are the values that made democracy in America great, that made this country great. How many? What is happening to the, the generations that understand the core values? This study goes on and says some 23% of adults under 30 said in the new survey that patriotism was very important to them, which means that 77% did not feel it was important. And, and that might be all Pollyannish and just all about the flag, but patriotism, if it's about a country that believes in equality, that believes in the First Amendment and our Bill of Rights and the values that underpin that, then we must also then have a decadence of that loss of those values, a degradation of those values that actually, as they continue to push for a bizarre DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which I say bizarre because while on paper it sounds good, the reality is it's all about forcing coercively individuals to somehow admit that they're bigots, somehow admit that this country is hateful rather than great. That's what the 1619 Project was all about with the New York Times, is that it wanted to basically somehow make this country fall on its sword collectively and take on all the sins of previous generations all the way back before the Civil War, forget the corrective actions that each generation did to make the future America better. No, we somehow had to go back, revisit it, and re-blame each other, and now begin to pay out reparations, etc., as Governor Newsom wants to do in California and elsewhere. Uh, and as if we haven't done course corrections over time, and as if there's no admission that there does still need to be more course corrections for better equality, better synergy of society, but done through a respect of a tough love rather than a mandate coercively with a bigotry of low expectations for some in society. And of those 23% of adults age 30 that said that patriotism was very important to them, 
31% of younger respondents said that religion was very important to them. So 69% don't seem to care about religion anymore. Or if they do, we don't know what it is that they care about enough to answer on these surveys. Only 23% of those under 30 said that having children was very important. And, you know, this actually, you know, may say, well, what's the big deal? These are sort of uh, very um, achievement-oriented folks that, that, you know, understand the responsibility of having kids. Well, remember, the desire to, to not only have kids but create a family and love those children is about legacy. It's about wanting to leave the world a better place. And there's no greater investment and greater love of the planet than to leave behind folks that share your own values. To not only carry on your own name in a, in a, in a self-serving way, but in an altruistic way so that you can have a legacy that continues to live on like building religious facilities, like building charity foundations, like building institutions. These are legacies that live on. And yet, 67, 77% of adults under 30 don't want to have that legacy and don't even say that they want to do it later. One of the interviewees in the Wall Street Journal said, I think patriotism encompasses being part of your community and helping other Americans. Mr. Williams said as he coaches youth sports and volunteers with a group that provides security at protests and rallies. As a middle school student, he said at the time of the 9-11 attacks, he knew that he would join the military. I just felt that I wanted to do my part to protect my country, said Mr. Williams, who supported former President Trump's two White House campaigns. He eventually served four years in the Marines. Janet Boyer, a former Pentecostal minister who lives in Cumberland Township in southwestern Pennsylvania coal country, patriotism, she said, has taken on a political sheen and is no longer important to her. For me, patriotism has turned into right-wing nationalism. She was a Biden supporter. She said divisiveness weighs on her. Back in the day, Republicans and Democrats had a sense of deference to one another. They didn't act like they were in a schoolyard trying to be vengeful and reactive. So while I disagree with her on the patriotism, when in fact she has allowed certain voices to color what patriotism means to her, I think she's right about the schoolyard politics and vengefulness and vindictiveness that seems to rise up. Now, I think the media exaggerates the amount of that, but our discourse has changed. The American dream, does it live on? How many people believe that no matter what your starting point, you can always become successful? 21% in the survey said that America stands above all other countries in the world, a view that some call American exceptionalism. Half said that America is one of the greatest countries along with some others. The share who said that other countries are better than the U.S. rose to 27% up from 19% when the same question was asked 2016. Math teacher said that other countries rank higher on test of math performance. She said longer vacations and material 
maternal leaves in some European countries mean they have a better quality of life. In America, you basically have to work your whole life and you don't get breaks, she said. Now, as I mentioned earlier, and some professors have said that this all might be colored by the downbeat economy that we currently have, as people sort out everything right now, but the shift and the huge shifts and reductions are beyond that. The survey did find sharp differences by political party on social issues that have gained prominence. On discussions of racial and ethnic diversity, many felt that the country and society had gone too far. 61% of Democrats actually said that diversity efforts hadn't gone far enough, compared to 14% of Republicans. Three-quarters of Republicans said that had gone too far. And 56% of Democrats said the society hadn't gone far enough in accepting people who are transgender. And as you can see, the, the, and it goes on to, to talk about different uh, identity politics and, and whether we need to continue to focus on this issue or not and a huge division between party politics. It's because that has become the talking point of both parties. And that's not a surprise. I do think the two are deeply connected. The issues of patriotism, family values, American values, equality, and the issue of what we say and what we do. To the point that now we see what's happening in women's athletics, for example, in Olympic athletics and in, in swimming, that we're actually having a debate as to whether biological men can now begin to dominate women's sports. This is not to say that they don't have the freedom to identify who they are personally, but there has to be lines in which society maintains a rational approach to differences that exist biologically between sexes. You can't, on the one hand, repudiate people for discrimination, for, for things that are not treating people equally, and in, on the other hand, give a small segment of society an elevated position that gives them an unfair advantage in which nobody, the vast 99%, are unable to compete against. It's just a, a, a completely backwards hypocritical position, which is far from egalitarianism. And it's actually favoritism. And this is what I've talked about in, in anti-Islamist ideology, is that truly, if you really believe that you want diversity of ideas in the Muslim community, then don't give the theocrats and the misogynists and the, and the uh, uh, folks who hate our values a leg up, a pass, when it comes to where their positions, what their positions are on issues of universal freedom and religious and human rights. But this inconsistency is never discussed. It's never debated. It's simply about what can be used in a political sense in the debate in America to one-up the other party. 
It's not about core shared values. And I think eventually these numbers might continue to separate us more. But I do think eventually there's going to be a reverberation back that people are going to get tired of the negative Nancy, if you will, the uh, negativity and actually begin to seek folks who can say the same things and be just as strong and not pushovers, but be positive about who we are and stand their ground when it comes to American ideology. And that diversity is not just skin deep and political identity politics, but actually, and racial politics, but actually it is deeper that diversity is about ideological diversity from far left to far right to, to conservatism, orthodoxy, and liberalism. That all of these should be represented in the American discourse and we should go back to the time in which we had healthy debates and then argued and rolled up our sleeves and then barbecued together and hugged and shared our family stories. We can do those things, you know. And that's what Americanism is. And as you know, if you've listened to this podcast before, you know that this is a topic that runs not only near and dear to my heart, is the ultimate nuclear idea that will allow us to vet folks who see America as a city on a hill, a beacon for freedom globally, or if they see it as a threat, if they see it negatively. Because that's what the Islamists, that's what the, 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 the progressivists, the far leftists that are in bed with the, uh, you know, the, the, the extreme socialists on the planet and uh, all of the, those that are part of that red-green axis, if you will, the, the communist-Islamist axis, and why the Chinese Communist Party works hand-in-glove with the Iranian Khomeinists and even now with Saudi and others, it's because... What unites them is their fear, their hate, their disgust for free societies, for liberal democracies. And speaking of those that hate America, the Council on American-Islamist Relations just published a piece by Corey Saylor on April 15 in Al Jazeera, the font of the Muslim Brotherhood globally out of, Al out of uh, Qatar, which is their state-owned media, Al Jazeera, which, by the way, still doesn't have... Mr. Musk, Elon Musk, there's still no um, identification. NPR recently appropriately got identified as state media, and there's all this. They, they signed off Twitter, and they won't be involved in it as a result. They are state media, folks. But Al Jazeera doesn't have that. They are state media. They are Qatar's wholly owned media, owned by their royal family, and a font of the Muslim Brotherhood in which the most conservative studies say that 90% of their staff are Muslim Brotherhood-affiliated political activists. So, they are state media. Anyway, Al Jazeera published a piece called by Corey Saylor, the, one of the advocacy directors of CARE, research and advocacy director at CARE in Washington. He said, a small dip in Islamophobia in the U.S. gives us hope. So first of all, again, he's invoking this term Islamophobia, which is absurd. They love to invoke that because you can't question their interpretation of Islam. And if you do, you're, you're phobic, you're a bigot. And they're using their own data to say this, that, okay, let's say they're talking, let's talk about 
whatever bigotry exists against Muslims, okay, has that gone up or down? Last year, they, Corey says, CARE registered a decline in the number of complaints from Muslim Americans for the first time since 1995. Is that because their programming decreased during COVID pandemic? Is that because well, they, they claim that basically it's because of, wait for it, wait for it. For years, Saylor says, while white supremacists and anti-government groups enjoyed political cover, Republican-driven political correctness ensured that staff at the Departments of Justice and Homeland Security knew that focusing on groups unrelated to the Muslim community could have negative implications for their careers. After January 6, it became possible. It's possible that overbroad law enforcement surveillance and informants deployed against law-abiding Muslims may have decreased as such law enforcement agencies directed their focus towards actual threats. Where is he getting this from? That's absurd. That somehow his intimation is that, oh, it's all because of the white supremacists. Anybody with three brain cells working together knows that the incidence of terrorism committed by radical Islamic groups globally has gone down precipitously in the past five years. And I don't even, I wouldn't even ascribe the, the barometer of reports to care as being valid at all. We've already talked about the number of times that their reports claim to be about Islamophobia or bigotry against Muslims, and it ends up actually being quite the contrary. Burned Korans that end up being actually Orthodox Muslims trying to figure out how to, how to dispose theologically correct, correctly, if you will, of their Korans not based on hate or the fake attacks that the teenager in the subway in New York a few years back uh, reported or the other attacks that have proved to be fabrications. This is, again, not to say that bigotry against Muslims don't, doesn't exist, but this organization has proven itself to be the least reliable organizations, the least factual, and the most dishonest when it comes to identifying the real problems in America. In fact, they are the root cause of the problem. They're deflections of root cause analysis of an understanding that the ideology that they protect of misogyny, of, of ignoring the plight of women within our communities at mosques and elsewhere, of, from the horrors of FGM and honor killings, female genital mutilation and honor killings, to the significant impact of global movements like the Muslim Brotherhood and Islamist Jamaat Islamiyah and others on radicalizing Muslims across the planet, including the Taliban and other ways and other groups. And they're ignoring that has only been a liability for the rest of our community in which Americans see their dissimulation. Americans see how little they've contributed to solving the problem and actually claiming Muslims like myself and others in our Muslim reform movement, they, they, they report that we are the problem versus being the solution. And now they're measuring that while Islamophobia has decreased, it's decreased that hate for whatever amount it exists decreased in spite of their work, not because of their work. It's decreased because 
terror incidents have decreased because of shifting geopolitics globally and also the success of our military against ISIS and against Hezbollah and other radical elements. And obviously before the Biden administration now returned to the era of appeasement. And now radical Islamism is thriving again from the Khomeinis to the Brotherhood globally. And as they are getting appointed as ambassadors of our community again, much like Obama was in 1.0, 2.0, and now Obama 3.0 continues. The other part is proportionality. There's no discussion of proportionality as if somehow anti-Muslim bigotry is the biggest problem of any minority in America. And yet the studies from the FBI, from the ADL and others have demonstrated that still anti-Semitism is far and away the most significant number of hate crimes that exist in America with synagogues and others being attacked, sadly, on a weekly, if not rare, occasionally on a daily basis. With students being attacked at Yale, with students being attacked at various universities across the country from the Jewish community. And yet... This description in Al Jazeera seems to ignore a lot of that in a pathological way. More to come later on that. Now, there was a, a, a report by Tai Hakli of a discussion of at uh, Yahoo Finance of the 15 most powerful Islamic countries in the world. And Haki looked at, and, and how did he describe them? Basically, he said, you know, that listen, there's 55 countries, 56 actually, with a Muslim majority population and part of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation that make up 1.7, 1.8 billion people and Muslims in the world. And the figure is expected to rise continuously because of high population growth rates in many of the Muslim-majority countries. In the West, in the UK, they make up 6.5% of the population, growth from 4.9% 2011, and almost 40% of Muslims live in impoverished areas in the country, which has led many to believe that Muslims in the country are trapped in a cycle of poverty. Even though Muslim countries make up a sizable part of the global population, their economies aren't doing so well. Hmm, I wonder why that is. On one hand, and I, I say that sarcastically because a lot of these articles don't get into the fact that it is about the mixture of faith and state politics. The mixture of the lack of an enlightenment process of separation of mosque and state, and they never get to the core problem. Because as now they point out in this piece, it says, on the one hand, you have smaller countries in the Middle East, such as Oman, the Emirates, Kuwait, and Qatar, which have huge oil deposits, because of which they are among the wealthiest nations in the world in terms of GDP per capita. But because of the small population size, it doesn't seem to translate well into absolute wealth. On the other hand, you have some of the most populous countries in the world, including Indonesia, which has the highest number of Muslims in the world, followed by Pakistan, 
While Indonesia's economy is stable and continues to grow, Pakistan's economy has suffered significantly because of various reasons which are discussed in the data. So, while they have great potential for development, they've seen their economies stagnate. And, and here's the crux. The combined GDP of the 55 Muslim countries that this study analyzed is less than $8 trillion. A fraction, a fraction of the GDP of the U.S. alone, the biggest economy in the world. And despite this economic vulnerability and uncertainty, you know, most powerful Islamic countries in the world boast fearsome militaries. Many of these countries are in constant turmoil and strained relationships with their neighbors or other countries because of which spending on the military takes precedence rather than on improving the standard of living. Uh, again, this make my, this piece makes my head want to explode because it, it's about it's authoritarian regimes. It's almost as if it's dancing around the discussion of authoritarianism as if it doesn't even exist, but somehow it's just they're a little overly focused on their military. And it goes on and says, in fact, many countries in the Middle East have massive arms deals with the U.S. in an attempt to bolster their defenses. It's just their attack which is bolstered. Even in the second half of 22, two huge arm deals were agreed by U.S. President Biden to Saudi Arabia and the Emirates worth over $5 billion. Threats by country nearby include Yemen with the Houthi rebels. Saudi Arabia's controversial oil-rich nation with questionable human rights, questionable human rights, is a major arms partner with the U.S. Yes, so, yeah, you know, feeding these folks arms, that is a valid concern. Do we, what is our ethical role with that and again you get into macro diplomatic stability versus micro human rights devastation done with the presence of those weapons so yes iran is a bigger enemy to us than saudi arabia yes china is a bigger enemy to us than russia but do we then become pro-russian because of that relative threat? Do we become pro-Saudi because of the relative threat from Iran? And I talk about that in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, that a Game of Thrones approach to the world politics stage, whether it's the Muslim community in the Middle East or globally, will only kick, down, kick the can down the road and actually make us more ethically bound to the human rights disasters in those countries. Now, you could say, well, the world would be on fire if we don't make short-term choices. I think, again, it's about what our values are and how we articulate them even to our quote-unquote friends or frenemies. So this study said to determine the most powerful Islamic countries in the world, we identified... Muslim nations as those which were part of the OIC, and then they calculated GDP of each nation, ascertaining their military strength based on global rankings by global firepower, and then assigning a 60% weight for GDP and 40% for military strength. So, 
If a country has strong military but weak economy, its power and influence is not as significant. And then they deducted the average score from 100 to come up with a score for each country, sorted highest to lowest. So out of the top 15, Qatar was number 15 with a score of 66. The Emirates were number 12, score of 74. Malaysia, number 11, score of 78. And has the eighth largest economy in the Muslim world. Iraq, number 10, because of its size. Iran, number 6, with a score of 87. Influential because of the size and weight of its military, but yet a limited economy with no products coming from within. And then number 5 was Saudi Arabia, again with a horrific amount of money that it has dumped, including the building of this little 26,000 kilometer square area in northwest Saudi Arabia for what appears to be a trillion dollar, half a trillion to a trillion dollar project called Neom, Neo, Neo Mustaqbal, which means in Arabic, the new future if you will, neo being the English word or Latin prefix, prefix on uh, new and then mustaqbal being future in Arabic. And just take a look at the video on that. It, it, it is nauseating what they're talking about, section cities in one line and then a, a carbon zero footprint uh, area and um, a self-contained community on and on in which they're talking about 9 million people here and 3 million there and somehow they're going to take what is now desert and create it into this self-contained area that not only is going to cost a trillion to build but I'm not sure how it's going to be self-sustaining it's like the opposite of free markets and that they are using innovation all from folks outside Saudi Arabia to then come in and build this in a completely non-free market method, which is just based on a authoritarian operation done by the Saudi government. And now there's recent reports that Neom is actually putting into place a surveillance system that the Chinese have educated the Saudis in how they do facial recognition and other things that are related to the so-called innovative city that they're doing but really just like the chinese that's on the cutting edge of all the technology that they're pushing around the around the world from apple to microsoft with lenovo and others and hardware the saudis are getting closer to the chinese not further away so that's number five number four Egypt with a score of 90.2. And again, massive military, large population, so not surprising that it's high up there, but again, an authoritarian military dictatorship. So shows you what use this data is. 
Number three of the most influential countries, Pakistan, score of 91.2. Strong military, again, a secular military dictatorship with complete decadence when it comes to Islamist rule and the Sharia system of, of corporal punishments and hudud punishments, as it's called. So hardly a modernizing country, but again, very powerful as a result somewhat of our own um, empowerment. And remember, Pakistan is a nuclear power. Number two, Turkey, renamed itself Turkiye in the Middle Eastern vernacular, be it Arabic or Turkish. The third largest economy in the Muslim world, Turkey has been reeling from an economic crisis which has resulted in hyperinflation in the last 10 years. And then recent earthquake, on and on, but it's still number two. Number one with a score of 94.2 is Indonesia. You know, on the one hand, I was surprised about that. But on the other hand, with the scoring mechanism that was used here, it's not surprising. Its GDP exceeds a trillion dollars at 1.2 in 21. It's one of the largest economies in emerging markets. And it's also had significant inflation and it has a strong military. And um, it's increasing its military strength as a result of threats from China and uh, um, a nuclear submarine deal with Australia. So again, it I think actually, if there is a silver lining to this study, it's that Indonesia is number one. Of all the Muslim-majority countries that are on the precipice of beginning to modernize, it's Indonesia now. I've talked to you before on this program that whether it's the Christian mayor that was ousted and imprisoned because he tried to speak about interfaith and was told that he was he was ridiculing Islam or whether it's the the rise of Hamas like movements of Islamists in Indonesia the bottom line is is that for every one step forward it takes three steps back but we need to pay attention to that we need to have a policy in which we empower the anti-islamists the reformists Indonesia's constitution is still based in a belief in Indonesian nationalism, a national identity that is not rooted in the Islamic State. And the former president of Indonesia, Abdurrahman Wahid, used to talk about the fact that we don't want an Islamic State, he said as to Indonesians. He said, you should have a state of Islam in your heart, but not in your government. We don't need the Islamic State. So there is a silver lining there that ultimately, despite the theocrats, despite the Islamists that the most successful economy and despite America, right? Is it our policy to openly support Indonesia? I mean, Indonesians will tell you that they wish they could take on the Arab dominant Islamic countries that put them at a lesser level because they feel that because the language of the Quran is their language that the Indonesians feel to be second and third class citizen when it comes to the global Islamic communities. So they wish that America would give them a leg up. But no, Saudi and other Arab countries seems to get our, our focus, our hyper focus on the Gulf states, if you will, seem to get our vigilance and, and public deference, much more so than Indonesia when it comes to our American foreign policy and State Department. A lot to learn there and a lot to 
to look at into the future. And uh, so find me online, always discussing these issues on social media at Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and on Facebook at MZ Jasser, and also on Twitter at Dr. I'm sorry, at Reform This Radio, at Reform This Radio. God bless you all. We'll see you soon. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.